welcome to the community-supported Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from a speech given at a live Step It Up event in downtown Washington, D.C., an interview with the speaker on Radio Nation, and live music by Emma's Revolution. The first voice you'll hear is that of Mike Tidwell. Our next speaker um, is someone who I don't know whether to praise or curse, um, because he's probably had more influence on my life personally than, than anyone else. Um, I read Bill McKibben's book, The End of Nature, in 1990, and I've told him this before, that I, it's, you know, it's one of those books where there aren't many that we read in our lifetime that completely change us, and the fingerprints of that, that works stay on you the rest of your life. And I, I read The End of Nature in 1990, and... Um, this changed everything, changed how I looked at the world. Uh, it was the first time that I truly allowed myself to accept that the planet was changing, that global warming was happening. Um, and, but after I read the book, um, something very strange happened. I did like many Americans, most Americans. Um, I went into a, a deep state of denial. Um, I didn't deny that global warming was happening. This gentleman convinced me that it was happening. Um, I denied that it was going to affect me. Um, I somehow shut that out. Yeah, it's happening. Yeah, the news was coming in in the 90s. But somehow I could keep that sense that it's going to affect me or later my child at bay uh, until the third assessment report came out from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 2001. And that scientific body brought Bill McKibben's voice back into my ear after a 10-year sort of hiatus um, and led me to be a full-time climate activist and give everything that I have to this issue. And I know that there are a lot of you here tonight um, and I've met many of you who are solar contractors, are faith climate activists, um, are campus organizers um, because of Bill McKibben. It is an amazing, amazing uh, honor for us to have Bill McKibben with us tonight. He's an environmentalist, a writer, and a leading activist in the U.S. climate movement. He was editor of the Harvard Crimson newspaper in college. He wrote much of the New Yorker Talk of the Town column in the mid-1980s and wrote his first of 10 books, The End of Nature, in 1989. It has been printed in more than 20 languages. Um, his most recent book is Deep Economy, uh, The Wealth of Communities and the Durable Future, just out. I've read it. It's great. Um, and we have that book uh, for sale here tonight, uh, as well as The Weathermakers. Um, he, Bill lives in Vermont and is a scholar in residence at Middlebury College, which in the last few years has turned into like this 1960s Berkeley of climate change up there in Middlebury, uh, Vermont, uh, the students there. The last Labor Day, this, la- this past Labor Day weekend, Bill initiated and led a five-day Vermont, Vermont climate walk, which culminated in the U.S.'s largest ever climate rally at that point in time. There were about 1,000 people there in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, and we all cheered them on from afar, and many of us in this room were there. Um, earlier this year, Bill and students at Middlebury College launched the Step It Up campaign, uh, which we're going to talk a lot more about um, tonight. Uh, and we have some posters up there in the balcony all about Step It Up. Because it is time to step it up. Um, there are now over 900 local Step It Up actions. I guess that's the latest count. Every day there's more. That's going to be happening uh, in 50 states on April 14th, and the list is growing, and Bill McKibben's the reason. He's the reason. A lot of us are here tonight. He's the reason um, that this movement is moving. He is a spiritual, 
emotional, philosophical leader of this movement. And every age has its prophet. Every age has its prophet that brings the message that at first we don't want to hear, but the truth is cannot be repressed. And our prophet and our era of global warming and all that we can do to fight it and make this world better, our prophet is Bill McKibben. Great good fun for me to be here tonight, and especially in this gorgeous church. Now, I have to confess, I'm a Methodist myself, um, but in a little tiny sort of backwoods Methodist church. Um, and I've never risen very far in the ecclesial hierarchy. Um, I've been a Sunday school teacher, though, for a while. And Sunday school teachers are usually down in the basement, you know, um, um, there with the felt board, putting the apostles in order and things. And um, I think we generally suffer from a great case of pulpit envy. So it may be, it may be difficult to get me off after my allotted 20 minutes. You may have to drag me away. And it's a special pleasure to be here on St. Patrick's Day. It's a holiday I've always liked for a very long time, partly because, you know, long before people were talking about the environment, this was the one sort of green day in the entire um, year. And in fact, um, um, you know, may, may have given us some clues about, you know, that, uh, you know, well, along with the environment, I actually really enjoy beer now and again. And, and, and there's probably something to be said for, um, you know, um, knowing how to celebrate and, and thinking about um, that when we get together. It's so much fun to be here with Tim Flannery. You know, when I wrote The End of Nature in 1989, I expected that there would be pretty soon a lot of other books about global warming and climate change and things. And for a long time, there weren't. Um, and, and it was such a relief a few years ago when other books about this topic, Tim's, Betsy Colbert's wonderful book, one or two others, uh, began to appear. Um, and, and partly because it took the burden off of me to sort of talk about the, keep telling people about the science of this stuff, something that I've been willing to do and that was sort of part of the interesting journalistic task of that book and things, but it's not really what I'm best at. I'm not a scientist. Um, um, we're in a great moment because we have managed finally, thanks to Tim, thanks to Al Gore and an inconvenient truth, thanks unfortunately to Hurricane Katrina, thanks to a lot of other things, we've passed some kind of point where people now are beginning to understand this problem. The educational part is sort of over, or at least we've reached a threshold where most people understand what it is that's happening. The question that we now face, the question for our moment is, are we going to do anything about it? Are we going to take that knowledge, which has been sitting in the back of some people's heads like Mike's for a long time waiting to come out, and in his case, he's blossomed into really perhaps the most important regional climate activist in the whole country. Um, in other people who are sort of just newly awakened to this, who saw an inconvenient truth or, or, or have been watching the weather in their play, can we take that latent feeling 
and make it count politically. What we need, what we need, and what we don't yet really have is a movement around global warming. It's almost strange because for 10 or 15 years, we've had the kind of superstructure of a movement. We've had first scientists and then engineers and economists and policy people and all the sort of things you'd need to kind of have a movement. The only part we've been missing is the movement part. People actually, they're doing what has to be done. What has to be done to put on the pressure to make something happen. I remember sitting and interviewing a few years ago for a couple of days John McCain, who had introduced what at the time was a fairly important piece of legislation on climate. Not anywhere near good enough, not at all what we need now, but still at least. I said to him, why does this have so, little, so much trouble getting even you know, 20 or 30 senators behind it? And he said, you know, for most senators, this is a no-brainer. They hear every day from the fossil fuel lobby, and they don't hear anything from people at home. Um, and that stuck in my mind. ExxonMobil made $40 billion last year. More profit than any company in the history of profit sort of companies, you know. Um, um, we could probably pool all our spare cash in this room tonight and still come up slightly short of $40 billion. <laughs> um, that's not how we're going to win, okay? But we are going to win, or at least we're going to give it one heck of a fight. If all the world were peaceful now and forevermore, peaceful at the surface and peaceful at the core, all the joy within my heart would be so free to soar and we're living on a living planet circling a living star i don't know where we're going but i know we're going far we can change the universe by being who we are and we're living on a living planet, circling a living star. And if all the world knew justice now and forevermore, justice at the surface and justice at the core, all the joy within my heart would be so free to soar. And we're living on a living planet, circling a living star. I don't know where we're going, but I know we're going far. We can change the universe by being who we are and we're living on a living planet circling a living star and if all the world knew freedom now and forevermore 
core. All the joy within my heart would be so free to soar. And we're living on a living planet, circling a living star. I don't know where we're going, but I know we're going far. We can change the universe by being who we are, and we're living on a living planet. This past week, the Bush policy received a very stern rebuke from the Supreme Court, no less, which ruled not only that the EPA has the authority, but also that it has the duty to use that authority unless it can offer a scientific reason why it shouldn't. Joining me now to discuss the significance of that ruling, as well as a major new report from the United Nations, Coming out very firmly saying that we people have already made our planet sick is Bill McKibben, author, activist, reporter, and the author of a brand new book, Deep Economy, that is about how we need to restructure the scale on which we live. Bill, welcome back. Thanks for being so concise right before the break. I'll tell you, you've had an impact already. I went out to get a cup of tea, and I looked at that paper cup, and I said, "Aha! Uh-huh, I am using the, <laughs> the ceramic one. Well, that should just about do it. I think we can stop worrying now. Let's talk about uh, a, a, a common question, and it's already been raised by somebody on the blog. Often when we hear, we individuals hear, you know, people have to change their behavior, an alarm goes off because it's usually an excuse for governments off the hook. You know, at this point, the most important thing that people can do uh, you know, it's good that we change the light bulb, and I've changed every light bulb in my house and an awful lot in my neighborhood. But even while we're screwing them in, we can't help but think, look, it's time to screw in some new federal policies. Uh, that's what really has to happen. If we're I thought get, you were going somewhere else with that screw wood, but if we're going to get, you know, change on the uh, on the scale and in the time frame that we need to get it, I think what people, even those who sort of cottoned onto the idea that global warming is a problem, may not fully have realized just what an emergency it is and how quickly we need truly dramatic action. That's why we're doing this huge set of rallies. This. Uh, this coming Saturday, really to drive home the point that people are fed up with government inaction, with corporate inaction, and that there's time finally for a real citizen's movement around these questions. Now, you've said in some of the interviews I've read with you that there's no stopping global warming. Uh, We've seen some. We're going to see some more. Uh, The only question is whether we can keep it from being catastrophic. Um, What will that take? Well, Human beings have warmed the planet about one degree already. We've put about enough carbon in the atmosphere to probably warm it another degree or degree and a half. We're reaching very near the absolute red lines where things that just redefine the world completely start to happen. James Hansen, uh, uh, the NASA scientist who's run the biggest computer model for the longest period of time, 
defied a Bush administration gag order last year and said, look, we've got 10 years to reverse the flow of carbon into the atmosphere. That is, as a planet, to start burning less coal and gas and oil, or else we'll live on a totally different planet, one where the great ice sheets above the West Antarctic and Greenland have irrevocably begun to melt, uh, uh, you know, redefining the very topography of the Earth. Um, this is the topic for our moment, the challenge. What the civil rights movement was, you know, a generation ago, this is ours. And what we need to make that happen is a steady uh, and dramatic transformation of our energy economy away from fossil fuel toward conservation, toward renewable energy, and toward reordering some of our habits and appetites in such a way that we no longer place the same kind of demand on the earth. And so in a deep economy, that's what you call it in your book, how would our communities, how would where you live look different? I think what's most important is to try to figure out how to begin reeling in some of the supply lines that we've spent the last century tossing out. So let's take, for instance, food. At the moment, the average bite that an American eats travels about 2,000 miles to reach their lips. That's not a very good way to go about things if you're worried about global warming. I mean, if I want to eat lettuce tonight on the East Coast to grow and transport one calorie of it from the Central Valley of California takes about 36 calories of fossil energy. That We can't keep doing that. Instead, what we need to do is try to figure out how to rebuild local food systems, the same kind of food systems that fed all Americans until 50 years ago and that feed most people on Earth today. And as I write about in the book, it's quite possible to imagine doing that with food and with energy and with culture and entertainment and with just about all the other commodities you could think of. You did it. You lived for a year on food stuff that you could only find with if within a close distance. Right in our valley up here on near the Canadian border. And, you know, we thought it would be tough. It turned out not to be so tough. There were enough old farmers hanging on and new ones starting up. And not only did we eat well, we also made a whole new network of friends uh, among the people who were feeding us. Give us an example. Oh, you know, I mean, for instance, uh, I've given up, I'd say, pretty much entirely drinking orange juice because I can get apple cider from down the road. And the young guy with the orchard is a wonderful fellow. And you know what? Um, he's very careful environmentally, but apples are hard to grow organically. So if August comes and some pest is there, then he'll use the minimum amount of whatever it is he needs to deal with it, and then I'll deal with that because what's most important to me is to have that kind of working community food system underway. Um, and there are a thousand other examples, and one of the points that they make and one of the points the book really tries to make is not only is our culture of endless economic growth environmentally destructive, it's also reached a point of being socially destructive. It's no longer making us happier, if anything, the opposite. The data is pretty clear that for the last 50 years, Americans have been growing less satisfied with their lives, even as they've gotten more stuff. And the reason is that that more stuff, the bigger house farther out in the suburbs, whatever it is, is drawing people further away from each other, eroding social connection and community. And to get that back, 
we need the same kind of local economies that would also help us deal with the environmental crises we're in. Do you think the environmental movement has adequately connected their concerns, your concerns, our concerns, with foreign policy, with, for example, the war in Iraq? Wouldn't Americans perhaps feel differently if they realized this war is for oil, this we're paying for our economy with our friends and loved ones' blood. And this is the classic example of the sort of supply lines I'm talking about. Look, for run our, to run our energy system, we let a few huge suppliers, say ExxonMobil with its ties to the Persian Gulf, or Peabody Coal with its uh, policy to rip off the top of every mountain in the southern Appalachians, we let them serve as our suppliers of energy. doesn't need to work that way. Uh, the, the energy grid could work a lot more like the Internet than it does like a kind of broadcast thing or something. I mean, I have solar panels on my roof, and they're tied into the grid. On a sunny day, I'm sending electrons down the line, uh, powering my neighbor's refrigerator with the sunlight that's falling on my shingles. Cloud goes over, well, then I can suck energy from someplace else. In the end, that's a hell of a lot more durable grid than one that depends on somehow manipulating the politics of far-off countries where we clearly happen to clue. Three huge things you can do to help support the show, but they only take a few seconds. Leave us a great customer review in the iTunes Music Store, dig the show on dig.com, and every month you can vote for the best of the left at podcastalley.com. Find links to all three of these most important sites on the right-hand side at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Thanks for your support. tell you the story about this thing we did last summer, just briefly. Think, and I, I was sort of trying to figure out in my own mind why it was that it struck me to do this sort of walk. I think it's because I'd spent July in Tibet doing some reporting for the National Geographic. One of the things, we were in a very remote part of Tibet where they hadn't let Westerners in in a very long time. And one of the things that kept seeing every place we'd go along the road would be these people walking, prostrating themselves taking months to walk across Tibet to go to Lhasa or to go around Mount Kailash or whatever. I think it just sort of stuck in my mind because when I got home to Vermont where I live, I was so sort of despairing about how little was getting done and how little progress we were making and how bad the science was getting, worse with each passing issue of science or of nature. And I called up a friend of mine um, and said, John, we've got to walk Let's just walk up to Burlington. Let's walk up to Burlington and let's 
sit in on the steps of the federal building there and let's get arrested. And who knows, you know, if it'll do any good or not. And, but, you know, maybe just so it'll do something. And, you know, I, so I called a few people and said that. And my friends are all sort of used to my nuttiness and they're all wonderful. I said, okay, we'll go with you. But, but one of them was wise enough to actually call up to the Burlington Police Department and say, what would happen if we did this? And the police department said, well, you know, we don't really arrest people for that sort of, you could just sit there as long as you wanted, you know? <laughs> um, nothing would happen. Um, they sort of intimated that we'd have to burn the building down in order, and the carbon emissions from that, you know, right off. Would, so we said, we're going to have to reconfigure. And in the course of about three weeks, working with just a small bunch of us and with a budget of about $2,500 or so, uh, which was just everybody pooling together their money, we organized this march. Um, it turned out to be five days and about 50 miles from the... We started at Robert Frost's old summer writing cabin up in the Green Mountain because we liked that poem about the road not taken and, and wanted to think about the road that we were on. And we started walking, and the day we started, there were about 300 people. And we were camping at night, and by the time we got to Burlington, Mike said there were about 1,000 people. Well, Vermont, 1,000 people is actually quite a few. And it was the largest political rally of any kind about anything for a very long time in Vermont. And it was very interesting. It changed the political dynamic of this issue in Vermont. Everybody running for federal office, everybody running for Congress and Senate, came up on the stage at our final rally. We invited them all to come speak. And before they spoke, we had the youngest kid who'd walked the whole way, a 14-year-old who had a Sharpie in his hand. And he'd hand it to each one of them as came up. And we had a big piece of poster board. And on it, we'd written what we wanted, you know, what our sort of goal was, 80% reductions in carbon emissions by 2050. And each one, which is, you know, the most ambitious proposal that's ever been anywhere in Congress. And at the time, you know, it had two or three co-sponsors and was considered sort of, you know, outside the pale or, or way too unrealistic or whatever. Well, every one of them, including the most conservative Republican candidates, signed on to that pledge. The woman who was running for Congress on the Republican ticket, who two months before had said she went, her announcement speech, had said that she wasn't sure that climate change was real and that more research was needed. Well, the research that was needed was how many people would walk across the state of Vermont <laughs> in order to do something about this. And God bless her. I mean, she not only signed, that's what all her campaign commercials were about for the rest of the thing. They'd show her signing this thing, and she was great. She photoshopped out all the other signatures, you know, just hers up on the uh, uh, thing. It was very cool. Um, so we had a sense that this was possible to really start putting some pressure on people, and it might work. But we also were really depressed to open the newspaper and read the story about this, the AP story, and have them say that thousand people that we turned out may have been the largest demonstration about global warming ever held in the United States. It's pathetic, you know. Um, 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 um. And so we thought, is there some way we can figure out how to make this um, national? What had been for 11,000 years and snow is melting like 11,000 tears down the face of Kilimanjaro 
where time itself is frozen, suspended in the air. Now the water flows on Kilimanjaro, damaging the essence of our atmosphere. Threatens our existence, Kilimanjaro. Oh, oh, Kilimanjaro. campaign. How can people get involved? What's going to take place this coming Saturday? Well, it's almost more like what isn't going to take place. <laughs> this was this idea that we started in January, me and six college students here at Middlebury College, where I'm connected. We launched a website, stepitup07.org. Ask people to organize rallies in their communities on April 14th to ask Congress to cut carbon emissions 80% by 2050. Now, we had no money and we had no organization, so we didn't really, we, we hoped that if we worked really hard, we could organize a hundred of these rallies by April 14th, which would have been about a hundred more than there have been so far. Instead, the thing took off just virally. Uh, as of today, there's over 1,300 of these rallies that will take place next Saturday. 
Uh, it's going to be the biggest day of grassroots environmental protests since Earth Day 1970. Some of them are going to be amazingly big and wild. There are going to be thousands of people in blue shirts crowding into lower Manhattan to form a sea of people to show where the tide line is going to be. Uh, they're going to be uh, uh, scuba divers uh, uh, holding underwater demonstrations off the endangered coral reefs in Hawaii and Key West. They're going to be skiers descending down the dwindling glaciers in the Rockies and the Sierras. They're going to be evangelical congregations out on the steps of their churches and sorority chapters and, you know, just you name it. Every kind of American in all 50 states will be involved. So far, there's 25 or so senators and congresspeople who are coming to speak at these events. I think we'll have many more by the time the week is done. We're going to knit it all together Saturday night in a kind of webcast out to all the people who took part. Um, um, but it's giant, uh, way beyond anything we'd expected. Mm. Not because we're good organizers, Laura, just because people are finally fed up enough to want to do something, to want to bring the same kind of urgency and passion and moral commitment that their parents or grandparents brought to the civil rights movement. The website, if people want to find out more information, is stepitup2007.org, www.stepitup2007.org. produced with the help of the members of the best of the left community you too can be a part of the show and we would love your help you can submit information about great clips you've heard volunteer to help edit these clips for the show or actually become an occasional guest producer for more information please visit the community at bestoftheleftpodcast.com that this was possible to really start putting some pressure on people and it might work. But we also were really depressed to open the newspaper and read the story about this, the AP story, and have them say that thousand people that we turned out may have been the largest demonstration about global warming ever held in the United States. It's pathetic, you know. Um, 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 um. And so we thought, is there some way we can figure out how to make this um, national? how to kind of start the same kind of, of energy going other places. And we didn't have any organization again, and we didn't have any money. But um, in mid-January, um, with six very newly minted college grads, Middlebury graduates people in the winter as well as the 
uh, 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 spring, so these kids had just graduated, had raised enough money that we could pay them each $100 a week. And we had a little, we have a little office in Burlington about twice the size of this table. Um, and uh, in fact, it, there's, that's, there's a table just like that in it, and the six of them sit around it with their laptop computers all day, just on the computer. Uh, whenever there whenever there's, has to be a discussion, one of them will say, laptops down, and everyone <laughs> closes their computer. Um, we launched this website, stepitup07.org, and we said to people, will you organize a rally on April 14th in your community? Now, you know, we could have... We thought about maybe we should do a march on Washington, okay? But we didn't have the organizational ability to do that or the money or whatever. And we thought about all the carbon it would take to bring everybody from across the country here. And we also thought we want Congress people to know that in their districts, people care about this, that back home people care about this, that it's not a second or a third tier issue after we get, you know, do all the other things we need to do, that it's right at the front of people's minds and and we also wanted to be able to kind of show against the backdrop of the places all around this country that are going to be affected and, and, and wrecked by the onrushing change in the climate. We wanted people to be able to take their stand there. So we just set up this website and issued this invitation and started sending out emails. We thought maybe, maybe if we were really lucky, we'd organize a couple of hundred of these things by April 14th. As of today, we just, I think today, went past about 930 or so. They're in... They're now in all 50 states. South Dakota was the holdout, but it came through this week. Um, and this success has literally nothing to do with those of us organizing it, because as I said, we basically have no idea what we're doing. Um, um, we're struggling very hard to sort of keep it, you know, sort of do what we can. What it has to do with is the desire of people to take action on this issue, because they understand that it's the most important thing in the world. I mean, every day there's something that day more pressing going on, you know, and there's obviously a lot of problems we need to address in this country and in this world. But every day, the biggest thing that's going on all the time that's remaking the world is this steady, inexorable rise in the temperature of the planet. What's so moving and powerful to watch is not only people responding, but people responding with unbelievable creativity to how to demonstrate what it is that they care about that will be affected. We've had, we have teams of scuba divers in the Florida Keys who are organizing an underwater demonstration with a plastic step it up banner off the endangered coral reefs in the Keys that aren't going to be there in 40 years, you know. We have people in lower Manhattan who are going to be thousands of people in blue t-shirts, um, blue shirts, sort of forming a human sea to show where the water is going to be once um, um, the sea level rises. There are people um, um, out west um, 
in Glacier National Park and in the uh, mountains uh, in the Wind River Range in Montana and Wyoming who will be skiing in formation down those glaciers that aren't going to be there much longer. Um, um, on and on and on and on. The range of creativity is amazing. There are wonderful actions planned for this part of the world in Washington and in many of the uh, outlying suburbs. You can find out information about all of them at this stepitup07.org place, um, this website that we have. One of the nicest parts of it, and I was reminded by listening to that incredible music from Emma's Revolution, one of the nicest parts of it is that all kinds of people have been coming forward to help, including, importantly, I think, um, um, musicians. Um, there are now on the website uh, a few dozen songs uh, about global warming from musicians all over the country, organized by a group called Muse uh, that is signing up songwriters to do just that. Um, and they're great and across a huge spectrum, and it, it's a reminder that we need an environmentalism now that's way more connected deep inside of us than the environmentalism that we've had for the last little while, maybe. That it's not just about parts per million and concentrations of toxics. It's got to be about the most deep connection between us and each other, between us and the rest of creation, us and the future. Those are the things that are at stake. Unsustainable. That's what you are. I need a little more track, Ken. Unsustainable. I mean, your car. Oh, my darling, it's incredible that you would drive that monstrous vehicle never before. Has something been more unsustainable in Enough to feed a family of five for a week. I mean, does that thing get miles per gallon? Oh, gallons per mile. You know, 
When I pull up behind a car like that. Well, I'm not sure you can actually call it a car. I mean, it's bigger than a New York City apartment. Unsustainable. Need I say more? That's one reason why we're in this war. But imagine, can't you see us driving together in? New Prius, what will you do, my unsustainable? You. We are maybe headed for self-destruction, but maybe not. We're talking with Bill McKibben in a week of extraordinary news on the environmental front. Uh, first, the uh, Supreme Court put the EPA on notice that they had to regulate uh, carbon emissions from cars and everything else. Uh, they've been trying to get away from that responsibility for years. The Supreme Court finally dragged them back. You also had a major report from the United Nations talking about not only the perils of global warming, and the fact that we've already, as a humanity, uh, done damage to our planet, but that the impacts of global warming and climate change will be felt unequally around this planet, hitting hardest the poorest parts. That raises a question for me uh, that I want to ask our guest, Bill McKibben. He's the author of a new book that you can get information about at our website, Deep Economy, the Wealth of Communities and the Durable Future. He's also one of the organizers of the Step It Up Round that will be taking place next Saturday all across this country, we're finding out. Uh, Bill, one of the concerns that a lot of people have is that environmentalists, and yourself included, often talk about the problem of growth as if it was growth itself that's the problem, not, say, the way our societies are structured, the, uh, the type of growth and, and the kind of wealth that results. Now, this UN report talking about the unequal uh, dis- distribution of the negative impacts, uh, will that help to bring us back to uh, just what kind of economies are hurting whom? Because it's not true that the pain is going to be equally felt. Well, it's not only not true that the pain is going to be equally felt. The perverse irony of global warming is that the by far the worst effects, at least at first, will be in the countries that have done the absolute least to produce the problem. I've spent a lot of time in Bangladesh in recent years, a country where there's so little carbon emission that the UN really is unable to measure it. It's almost a rounding error in their calculations. And yet the 140 million people who live there may well be underwater by mid-century uh, largely because the 4% of us who live here are producing 25% of the CO2 in the world. It's one of the things that makes this problem so difficult to deal with and one of the things that makes it both practically and morally important for the U.S. to quickly start getting its own house in order so we can begin to take some kind of credible part in the international discussions that are going to have to go on if we're going to have any hope of dealing with these problems. We've got a caller on the line, Doug in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Hey, Doug. Oh, hi, Ma. Uh, yeah, first of all, I really love your show. Um, just, uh, I live here in Tacoma Park, and the director of the Chesapeake Climate Action Network has uh, also lives here in his house 
is powered, or he gets 95% of his power from renewable sources. And like uh, Mr. McKibben's house, he feeds power back to the power grid. You know, and I just, it just amazes me, you know, it, it just convinces, his house convinces me that it is possible, you know, to, to live on renewable energy. And I just imagine what would happen if every house were rigged up like his house. Uh, he's also going to have an, he has an open house about five times a year, and he's going to have one uh, on the last weekend of this month. Uh, you can check, uh, ChesapeakeClimate.org for more information. All right, Doug, thank you. Um, Bill, this is going to raise the same question again about the kind of class aspects of all of this. Are we running into a problem where you're going to have model middle-class people who are able to make these changes and the problem people um, are going to be the poor who will get the blame for not having the... No, I think not. And I think that the guy that he's describing who heads the Chesapeake Climate Action Network is the exact example of why that won't be happening. He's not only doing all that he can to make his own community uh, uh, energy sufficient, they're doing all kinds of good work across the community. He's also one of our leading political figures in trying to do something about this. Mike Tidwell, who heads that outfit, is one of the key people who's helping organize these step-it-up actions that are intended to force corporate America and force the government to finally begin taking their responsibility seriously. Well, I guess that's where I was going, that we can't leave it up to individuals. We do need government action. Is there anything that people can demand right now of this Congress? Yeah, absolutely. We're telling Congress that we want them to commit to 80% reduction by 2050, an ambitious target to begin soon and to last a very long time until we've run the carbon out of our economy. And, you know, when we started this 12 weeks ago, people said, oh, that's an you know outrageous target. It's much too hard. You'll never get there. Well, the ground is shifting beneath our feet even as we speak, you know. Ten days ago, John Edwards, one of our top three Democratic presidential candidates, released his energy plan. And before he did, his people called up our stepitup07.org headquarters and said, look, you're going to like this. And indeed we did, because item number one on the list was 80% cuts by 2050. Has anybody seen the choir? I want to preach to the converted. I want to see them rising up. Don't want to see one gaze averted. Don't want to have to prove a point. Just want to know they're on my side. Just want to smile and in has anybody seen the choir? Has anybody seen the church? Maybe that's where I can find them. Standing tall against the fray. Strength and unity behind them. They gathered at the upon the shore Have they set the world on fire us. Has anybody seen the choir Has anybody seen the choir I want to preach I want to preach to the converted I want to see them rising up Don't want to see one gaze inverted Don't want to have to prove a point just want to know they're on my side Just want to smile and inspire Has anybody 
the choir? Are they teaching in the schools? Are they drinking in the bars? Are they making all the rules? Are they fighting in the wars? All I want to do is get a glimpse of who they are. Has anybody ever seen the choir? Though we may never reach consensus, hope is still within our reach. We can learn to move together for some motion in our speech. We are a mighty congregation with strength beyond our means. We have the passion and desire. Help us. Has anybody seen the choir? Has anybody seen the choir? I want to preach. I want to preach to the converted. See them rise. I want to see them rising up. Don't want to see one gaze. Don't want to see one gaze averted. Don't want to have to prove a point. Now, one of the great things of the moment is that we suddenly have this tool, the, the web, that allows us to do things simultaneously on the local scale. And for me, that's incredibly important. This new book of mine is all about sort of the need in the future for strong local economies, for building, for shortening our supply lines instead of ever lengthening them the way we've been doing, for figuring out an economy that doesn't rely on endless growth, you know, in order to make things work. But this technology allows us to do things both locally and sort of nationally at the same time. So on April 14th, if all goes well technologically, um, by the end of the day, there's going to be this cascade of images on the web coming in from around America as people take pictures of their action and send them in. And by the end of the day, you should be able to just go on there and see every corner of the country, people standing up. And, you know, they're going to be, we, if we brought them all, to all these people who will be doing this to Washington, we could have filled them all three times over. But it's going to be the largest grassroots environmental protest since Earth Day 1970, but it's going to be everywhere at once. Um, um, and hopefully, hopefully, it'll convince or start to convince some of our Congress people to make the deal that's going to be made in the next few years, one way or another, to make it strong enough and powerful enough to actually make a difference. I mean, this is a time of great promise because people are actually paying attention, but it's also a time of great peril. If you ran an oil company or a coal company or something like that, you would realize that your free reign was just about over and you'd be working to cut a deal right now. And that's what they're doing. And if they cut it on their terms, allowing a very long, slow, gradual transition to something else, then we're sunk. We might have been able to do that. If we'd started 20 years ago, we'd be in better shape. But we didn't, and now we have no choice but to take dramatic, rapid, not incremental, but transformational action on this issue. The shorthand we're using for that is this cut carbon 80% by 2050. There's no scientific uh, uh, calculation that tells you not 79% and not 82%. It's a way of saying, we need something very large, very fast, very dramatic. If we can get our Congress to start thinking that way, and if we can get 
the presidential candidates in 2008 to start thinking that way, then we have some narrow chance. Now, I got to tell you, there are no guarantees that it's going to work. You know, we've set a lot of things in motion. Tim described some of them. And the momentum behind some of these changes is enormous. You know, it's in a sense really come home to me viscerally in the last year or so, because just by chance, uh, my work on this stuff has taken me to a bunch of places I hadn't been before. Um, out on the huge, some of the world's biggest lava fields in, in Iceland, and huge, endless, barren volcanic plains, up in the Himalayas, in the highest places on Earth, you know, and staring up at Mount Everest, the only feature on Earth tall enough to stick up into the jet stream, and this white plume of cloud as a result that's always off to the sides. Down in the Antarctic, um, 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 just utterly humbled by the scale of the ice and the snow. and, and What they made me realize viscerally in a sense that I hadn't before, and this will sound very strange to say, and doubtless all of you have picked up on it long ago, but what they made me realize was that we lived on a planet. We lived on a planet like Saturn or Neptune or something. A place with its own powerful physical presence with its own physical laws. We live in such a human-centered world most of the time that we come to think that, you know, say in Washington, as, you know, basically for the last 15 years in this city, our political leaders have, I think, fundamentally believed that the laws that they pass are more real than the laws of physics and chemistry. Um, um, that, they can, that they can alter physical reality the way that they can alter the tax code or something like that. The only way that we can alter that physical reality even a little bit now is to figure out how to restrain ourselves in very powerful ways, to move to these technologies of restraint and to change our habits and our lifestyles in very powerful and thorough and in many ways quite beautiful ways. I don't know if we'll do that. I don't know if we'll do that. I mean, I wrote a book called The End of Nature. I'm not an unbelievable optimist all the time. <laughs> but for the first time, for the first time in 20 years, I'm actually feeling hopeful this year. Actually feeling as if we're finally at least waking up to this challenge enough to begin to at least put on a good showing. You know? To at least demonstrate that the consciousness that sets us apart from the rest of creation can be put to some good use. I think we have a real shot, but I think we basically have one shot. And I think if we don't take that shot for all it's worth in the next few years, then probably our 
chances of preserving a world that looks anything like the world we were born into are extraordinarily slim. It's incredibly good to be in this room, this room filled with the energy of people who are taking action, who are caring about all this. It's spreading very fast. It's a race to see how fast it can spread, to see if we can make the politics get better faster than the science gets worse. That's our task. It's a closing window, but there's still room there to do things. So I hope very much that on April 14th, when we collect those pictures from around the country, every one of your faces will be in them, um, um, and that you will think of ideas far better than ours in the coming months and years to make this same point that the time has really come for us to step forward and the pivotal question of our time. If we have the same kind of moral urgency and commitment and willingness to sacrifice that's marked a few other moments in American history, most recently probably the civil rights movement, then there is some chance. That's what we're about That's what Mike and his people have done so well. Thank you all so much for being here, and step it up. Down the botany den, the barn crashes brown from the autumn spate. Spreading hazels rustle as they bend and sway as they lead and wait. My fathers, they have walked this road and now I know. Yes, and didn't they know? There is no great and heavy load and now I know. Yes, and didn't they know? Fa la 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 la, stand on solid ground, on solid ground. Sun beats down in the vivid green. I hear it wild and loud, feel it wide and proud, the way it's always been. My fathers, they have looked this way, and now I know. Yes, didn't they know? No clever words we have to say, and now I know. Yes, didn't they know? It's the land, it is our wisdom It's the land that shines us through It's the land, it feeds our children It's the land, it cannot own the land The land owns you 
you heard today, given by Bill McKibben, was recorded live in downtown D.C. back on March 17th at a Step It Up 07 fundraiser event, which was uh, sponsored in part by the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, or CCAN, which is Mike Tidwell's organization. If, if you missed it, you can get more info more info about Mike a few shows back in the episode titled The Cherry Blossoms Bloom Earlier Each Year in D.C. I showed up early for the event uh, so I could help set up and, and sell tickets. This is the first event of theirs I'd ever attended, much less volunteered at. And as it turns out, it was actually the largest event they'd ever attempted. And they ended up with a paying audience of nearly 800 people. So it was a phenomenal success, and it was that night that I really realized uh, I had stumbled across a group of people who really seemed to have their acts together. You know, I can just tell by talking to them and, and seeing what they're up to. And so, being that fact as it is, I feel totally comfortable asking all of you to consider making a donation to the CCAN website at ChesapeakeClimate.org as well as signing up for their email list. See, because uh, these guys really know how to get stuff done. And uh, so even if you're not in their region, I'm confident that it would be money well donated because this is a group who uh, is working ridiculously hard on a global issue. So, you know, their work is going to end up impacting everybody. There will also be a link provided in the, in the show notes of this episode to CCAN and how to help support their work. So if you do choose to donate, I'd be honored, so to speak, if you filled in uh, the best of the left in the, quote, in honor of field on the donation form. This will help them know where you're coming from, and I just really appreciate it. What you're hearing now is the live audio that I recorded at the April 14th Silver Spring and Tacoma Park Step It Up Rally and March held right here practically in my backyard. It consisted of a, a long march from Silver Spring, which is a, just a neighboring town, to Tacoma Park, broken up by stops along the way, including an urban uh, organic community garden, a high-efficiency co-housing community, and the big stop of the day at the um, right out in front of Walter Reed Hospital. I don't know. Have you guys heard of that place? Um, it turns out it's about a half a mile from my house, and apparently it's famous. Who knows? Uh, we were we were there to 
you know, obviously to pay tribute to the troops injured in the line of duty, and but also really to make no bones about the connection between global warming causing energy sources and the current as well as future turmoil in the Middle East. And obviously we thought that was really important of all of the uh, the nationwide um, rallies going on for, for the Step It Up event. Our group was the only one in the country right there um, at Walter Reed. So uh, it, it, was a, it was a must-stop event for us. And... Um, and it, you know, and that was really important. During and at the end of the march, we were motivated and entertained by a group called the Rhythm Workers Union, who played drums and assorted percussion instruments. That's what you're hearing now, uh, of of all kinds. And the march concluded with a small rally slash jam session at the equally small pseudo center of town here in Tacoma Park just about a uh, really a literal stone's throw away from where I live which brings me to my last point which is Sunday April 29th as part of a regularly scheduled event Mike Tittle will be holding uh, an open house at his clean energy home in Tacoma Park from 1 to 5 p.m. all are welcome free of charge uh, get um, you know get a firsthand look at the the first home in DC uh, in, in the whole DC area powered almost entirely by renewable energy and landscaped with native plants. I will be in attendance if that's uh, of any interest to you and there will be lots of cool stuff to check out while you're there. Uh, get lots more information uh, about the event at chesapeakeclimate.org for all the information you can possibly want uh, on topics from the show, including links to Chesapeake Climate Action Network, uh, how to donate and get involved, details on the Clean Energy Open House, the uh, Step It Up 2007 official site, which is now fully engaged in post-event action after a successful day of national action on April 14th, Bill McKibben's books, uh, the the classic The End of Nature and his newest Deep Economy, and last but definitely not least, Emma's Revolution, who played the live music you heard today as part of the March 17th Step It Up rally in Washington. Just visit the show notes at bestoftheleftpodcast.com coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the border of Washington, D.C. My name's Jay, and this has been a nearly carbon-neutral edition of the Best of the Left podcast, powered by bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Thank you.